I'm Mark Peterson, and this is the FEMA Podcast. The Emergency Alert System is a national public warning system that requires broadcasters to provide the president with communications capability to address the American people within 10 minutes during a national emergency. The system also may be used by state and local authorities in cooperation with the broadcast community to deliver important emergency information such as weather information, amber alerts, and local incident information targeted to specific areas. Today, FEMA is giving the hardware for the system a major upgrade. When the upgrades are complete, all 77 primary entry point stations, or PEP stations, serving 90% of the population, will continue the ability to communicate critical safety information to the public in the event of an emergency. On this episode, we talk with Antoine Johnson, director of FEMA's Integrated Public Alert and Warning Program, about this incredible capability and how these upgrades serve an important role in our nation's public safety and national security communications infrastructure. Antoine Johnson, welcome back to the FEMA podcast. Antoine, uh, for those who didn't hear the first time you joined us, um, you are the director of the Integrated Public Alert and Warning System Program, IPAWS program here at FEMA. That's correct, Mark, and thank you so much for having me here this morning uh, to join you for this podcast. So, you know, you you joined us uh, in late 2018 when we were announcing a national test of the emergency alert system. Yes, which the is wireless part, emergency alert system the, at that time. Okay, so the wireless yes. emergency alert system, which is a part of the IPAWS program, right? It is. It is one component of the IPAWS program. Uh, and is really intended to uh, broadcast emergency information to mobile devices. So we're going to talk a little bit about the difference between the wireless emergency alert system and then the emergency alert system, which is really kind of what we want to talk about here, the emergency alert system. But those are two components of a larger program, which is the IPOS program. It is, absolutely. And uh, IPOS is composed of uh, two distinct programs. One is the emergency alert system, which has its uh, origin going back to 1951 with the Conrad program. And then, of course, it's been evolved or improved over uh, the last 68 years or so uh, into what we have today. Uh, the wireless emergency alert system uh, was uh, created as a result of uh, Congress taking action to create the WARN Act in 2006. And then, of course, the Federal Communications Commission uh, writing rules establishing uh, the basic criteria for wireless emergency alerts, or WIA as it's known. Uh, and it's being utilized today. But that's intended primarily to reach mobile devices in a geographic area uh, with uh, emergency information uh, that the public may need uh, to be informed about. So um, the emergency alert system, uh, you, you mentioned that it, it has its just a, a really interesting history here that goes back to the civil defense days. Yes. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the hardware that goes into supporting that and what we're doing right now to, to upgrade that hardware mm-hmm. and some of the really interesting things there. I mean, in fact, if you are in emergency management, I, I find that there's always uh, a part of emergency management that is really focused on alerts and warnings, like yes. from a historical perspective. Absolutely. Do, do you find that, you know, not to get off on a tangent here, but do you find in the work that you do that you find um, sort of these emergency managers that just take it on as a hobby, whether it's ham radio or, you know, some of the antique 
sort of uh, ways of doing uh, radio and alerts and warnings? Absolutely. And I, th- I think what's interesting is that you'll find that there are a number of hobbyists uh, out there who are uh, performing work in the emer- emergency management field uh, that find this, this particular work, you know, quite interesting when it comes to emerg- the emergency alert system uh, for radio and television broadcast. And certainly, as you mentioned, uh, uh, ham radio operators uh, we are really trying to uh, bring the, the, the ham operators into this whole uh, emergency alerting type paradigm where we can leverage the services that they provide during, you know, very uh, severe uh, conditions. Because we know that, you know, many of these folks across the country have backup generators. I mean, they are very resilient when it comes to communications and supporting the initial response uh, effort that takes place in local communities. And so we want to make them uh, uh, an integral part of what we do to ensure that the public is informed. Uh, And then likewise, supporting first responders who are out there in the community who may have uh, situations where their communications are impacted in some way, but ham op- operators are still out there and able to relay information. Uh, so that's going to be a critical component that we'd like to add. The one interesting thing is they don't necessarily want to be organized or uh, be uh, or commit to some type of formal agreement. They're kind of loosely organized, but they come together you know, very well and they're very efficient uh, during emergencies. I mean, that almost uh, reminds me a little bit about the civil, like the Civil Air Patrol, uh, in a way. I mean, emergency management kind of leverages the Civil Air Patrol for certain mission missions, uh, but they are folks who have a um, uh, an enthusiasm about flying. They've organized uh, themselves, and then they can sort of offer that service to emergency management, right? Absolutely. I mean, a great parallel when you you think about you know Civil Air Patrol and. And, and uh, the, the, uh, their counterparts, I guess you would say, with uh, ham operators. But, you know, the, today we are extremely excited about the, the relationships that have been built uh, with the broadcasting community as well as with the cellular community and providing uh, these services to the public. And uh, we find that there's a great deal of excitement both on the broadcast and the cellular side, along with our emergency management community uh, uh, in terms of just being able to, to get information out and serve the public good. Uh, so we, there's a great deal of excitement. We're excited about it, and, and hopefully uh, this, this bow wave will continue to go, and, and we're going to ride it as long as we can. Okay, so let's talk about the broadcast community and how it um, effectuates the emergency alert system. So take me back historically um, to the Conrad days mm-hmm. about how that, um, how that system was developed and, and how it evolved. Right. So uh, prior to 1951, there really was not an organized uh, method for getting emergency information out to the American public. And so in 1951, President Truman created the Control of Electromagnetic Radiation Program, otherwise known as CONELRAD. The development of the Cold War. The development of the Cold War. And that was based on uh, a relay system that had been established. Uh, Back during the 1950s, most of our high-powered AM radio stations were located in and around major population centers, our major cities. And so the concept was to issue a national message if we had to and have that message kind of go from one station uh, to the next until the message was completed. So it was kind of this rolling broadcast concept. Uh, And that was to prevent our adversaries from uh, targeting our major cities using those assets to do that. In 1963, coincidentally with the Cuban Missile Crisis, President Kennedy signed an executive order establishing the emergency broadcast system. 
And if you travel in some um, more mature communities today, you will still hear people refer to the emergency alert system as the emergency broadcast system. Uh, but the, the name of the system was actually changed and some new rules were established by the Federal Communications Commission in 1995, which established the emergency alert system as we know it today. Uh, also, uh, with that uh, uh, system back in 1995, it was based on kind of the analog, you know, type concepts. Today, we have uh, migrated to more of a digital type world where the quality of the broadcast and our ability to deliver that information has been tremendously improved. And that came about with uh, President uh, Bush signing Executive Order 13407 in 2006, which really tasked the federal government, primarily FEMA, with modernizing our alert and warning capabilities. And so we're excited about the advancements that have been made with uh, broadcast capabilities and the ability to reach people, uh, and not just on a national level, but more specifically for state and local use when there are local emergencies that are occurring in their, in their local communities. So historically, was the message that was intended to be broadcast, was it intended always just to be a national message? It was. Okay. Absolutely. So the emergency alert system was created primarily for the president's use. Uh, It was uh, uh, a capability that was stood up to allow him to broadcast uh, national-level information for as long as he needed the broadcast airwaves to to get that message across. Right. In- interrupt the broadcast. To interrupt the broadcast. Had there been a national emergency, we could have left the broadcast airwaves open for a live message for the president for as long as he needed it. So if it needed to go for 24 hours, he wanted the, the emergency alert system activated for national purposes, it, we, would have, we would have kept that open for 24 hours uh, or until he no longer had the need, he or she no longer had the need for the broadcast. And are you breaking into every broadcast across the country or only certain stations? All 26,000 entities. So uh, we, we talk a, little, a lot about these primary entry point stations at the national level. And those are uh, ready, privately owned radio stations uh, that uh, FEMA has installed some, some fairly sophisticated and specialized equipment in to be able to interrupt broadcasting nationally. With those 77 primary entry point stations that are configured with backup transmitters, fuel systems, generators, are EMP protected, uh, and have some other you know, specialized equipment in them, Uh, we can cover 90% of the U.S. population through those 77 primary entry point stations. And I might add that uh, uh, stations like uh, Premier Radio Networks or companies like Premier Radio Networks, XM Sirius for subscription-based services, as well as NPR and their or National Public Radio and their member stations also participate as uh, primary entry point stations for a national message. As a condition of the uh, Federal Communications Commission's rules, all broadcast stations, all 26,000 other entities, whether they be satellite services or wireline or whatever the case may be, if they're a licensed broadcaster, they're required to monitor one of those 77 PEP stations for a national message. And that's how the message gets across to, uh, out to the entire nation. You talked about how historically it was intended to be used as a national message, but today we've evolved, right? So yes, now, now we're changing this program to allow for um, certain communities, uh, local jurisdictions, yes. to be able to use this to alert their 
the public. Talk Absolutely. me through how that has changed. Right, and we recognize that all all emergencies, you know, start locally, and uh, so. Uh, you know, local officials have to be empowered to inform and both empowered as well as uh, provided with the capability to inform their local populations of any threat to public safety. Uh, one interesting thing that Congress did in 2016 is they passed what was called the IPOS Modernization Act. And of course, that was signed into law by President Obama in April of 2016. In that law, it requires us to, ex- to, to extend our national capabilities down to state and locals for their use. And, uh, and one of the reasons for doing that is our national capabilities have never been used for a national emergency. And so I think the Congress recognized that there would be far greater use of these services that are built out to be resilient, robust, and to reach uh, the majority of the U.S. population, that it would, they would be much better used by local government to deal with local emergencies. And so, yes, we've extended these services down to state and local for their use. And, of course, when there's any local emergency, uh, a local emergency manager, whether it be fire, police, or the emergency manager uh, or the director of emergency management at the state and local level, uh, have the opportunity to, one, originate a message that would then go through IPAWS and be disseminated either to EAS, if that's where they intend for it to go, or they can send it to wireless emergency alerts. And coming in the very near future, they'll be able to send it over uh, NOAA's infrastructure through NOAA Weather Radio. And then, of course, there are about 75 or so Internet content providers and application developers who are also consuming that information and distributing it through their sources. So it's a it's sort of like a mixed uh, bag of tools that they can use to alert their public. Absolutely. Anything that can be used to reach the American public is is typically provided through IPAWS. So not only do they have their local, uh, for a local official, not only do they have their uh, local notification systems uh, to provide information to their local population on maybe trash pickup times or road closures or school events. Uh, Air raid sirens, well, interestingly enough, we have uh, some states have integrated their siren systems in with their local subscription-based systems. But what we're finding now is that with the, uh, with the development of IPAWS and us making those services available to state and local, they're now integrating their siren systems with IPAWS so that they can generate one message that will hit all of those dissemination channels simultaneously. So no longer a need to go to individual systems to send out a message, say a text message to uh, a bunch of subscribers to a local tool and then turn to iPods to send things out over EAS and another system to hit wireless emergency alerts and then yet another system to, to, to activate the siren systems. Uh, IPAWS provides that level of integration where local emergency managers, state, as well as our federal partners can activate all of those sources simultaneously with a single message. I mean, that integration sounds like an, an amazing opportunity because as emergency managers, we know that those air raid sirens, those outdoor warning sirens are intended to alert people outdoors. Absolutely. And so if you could have an integrated approach to a warning message to, you know, uh, meet people wherever they are, whether they're outside, inside watching television or listening to the radio, um, or on their phones. And All Mark, of a sudden, you've got to... Yeah. You raise them. a good point because that's that's one of the, the, the concepts or the goals for the program is to create the, this ubiquitous alerting environment.
Right. So we don't care what people are doing, where they are, you know, and, and who they are. We want to be able to reach them to make sure that they're informed about threats to their safety. And, and then, of course, provided with the protective action uh, type information that they need in order to protect themselves and or their property. Um, OK, so le- let's go back and talk about how uh, a local emergency manager or a, a local official, uh, state official, how do, how do they actually send a message out using the system? So typically what you'll find down at the, down at the local level is uh, many of the local governments will have tools like WebEOC, EverBridge, uh, Code Red, and a number of the others. There are about 55 or so uh, uh, commercial tools that are available for state and local use. And of course, uh, the decision to uh, acquire any of those tools are based upon the requirements of those local governments. Uh, and so typically many of those tools will also have an interface into IPAWS. Uh, If a local emergency uh, manager wanted to send out a message instructing local uh, residents to maybe evacuate or go to higher ground or take some type of protective action, they would activate uh, IPAWS through that local tool that they have in their EOC. Uh, That message would then come via the Internet into IPAWS and disseminated over all of the communications channels that we have uh, available to us through the IPAWS system. Uh, So it's a fairly seamless uh, process that they go through. There is no man in the middle to review the content of the message. So the local emergency manager is is entirely responsible for the content of the message and what he's communicating to uh, his local population. Uh, Anybody who is a fan of history is probably just wowed by the conversation about where this program came from and where it's evolved to. It's it's amazing. Um, But... Equally, I think, kind of interesting is the hardware itself and and where we're at now. Um, While we have, it sounds like, sort of evolved the program itself from being just solely a national asset to now being something that locals can can use uh, throughout Mm -hmm. the country, um, the, the hardware itself needed updating, right? Absolutely. We've gone through a full-scale upgrade to bring on the uh, emergency alert system, EAS, radio and television broadcast, into the 21st century, you know, if not, you know, kind of uh, teetering on moving into the 22nd. And uh, so there's a lot of advanced technology. Uh, There are great relationships that have been built with a lot of small businesses who are, you know, really the innovators when it comes to some of the technologies that we're using today, both for uh, emergency management as well as for military purposes. And uh, so that's a great relationship, and we we rely on those small businesses uh, to uh, continue to innovate and make new technologies uh, available to us. And so one of the one of the challenges that we have is just as a federal government, we are not as agile agile as the private sector when it comes to taking advantage of emerging technologies. There's a pretty robust, stringent uh, set of rules called the Federal Acquisition. Uh, regulation or the FAR that we must comply with. And so typically we'll find ourselves maybe one or two generations out of sync with existing or or emerging technologies. But I think with some of the uh, creativeness of our uh, contracting world, we're able to maintain pace with some of the newer technologies that are being made available to us to reach people and to solve some of uh, the nation's problems. Uh, so that's very exciting. Uh, I, I look at companies like uh, Amazon with the Dot and Alexa. You know, we've been entering into discussion with them where we can push information into uh, the Amazon 
DOT, right? So you get a flash flood warning or you get some other type of warning through your DOT device, and I'm not sure what the others are called, but I have the DOT, right? So, uh, And then if you're not entirely sure what you should do in response to that threat, you should be able to ask uh, Alexa, question. Alexa, what should I do in response to this, this warning? And you should be able to get that protective action information. If it's a hurricane or a tornado, uh, Alexa should tell you to go down into the basement of your home or get to a center room or into a stairwell or something to that effect. Uh, So that's very exciting. We think we'll be able to push into Alexa hopefully within the next year. Uh, The same thing with Google and uh, other, you know, uh, commonly uh, household names when it comes to some of these technology technologies. Uh, Apple, of course, you know, with wearable devices, I I call them wearable computers now because with your Apple Watch, you can do everything that you on that Apple Watch that you could do on a you know a very expensive computer a few years ago. And so if you've uh, if you notice from the October 3rd wireless emergency alert test that we did uh, last year, uh, that information was being pushed to Apple Watches as well, as well as some of the Android type devices. So that's exciting that, you know, we're able to reach people over a a range of technologies that they have, you know, kind of either on their person or that are available in the in the community. So you talked about uh, on the front end of this, uh, the PEP stations, the primary end of uh Entry points. The primary entry points uh, stations and the upgrade there. So, I mean, obviously the use of um, new technology is amazing in terms of emerging the, uh, the ability for people to read, uh, receive alerts that, that are critical in storms and yes, things like that. Uh, but the, the PEP stations, the primary mm-hmm. entry point stations, uh, are also getting an upgrade. Yes, and so are. we've done a number of those around the country. So tell me about those. All right. So these primary entry point stations that serve as the uh, the president's gateway into the broadcasting community are in the process of being upgraded as well. Uh, when I took on the program, uh, the IPOS program, there were 36 primary entry point stations that were kind of left over from the Cold War uh, era. Uh, they had, you know, dated generators and fuel underground uh, fuel storage tanks, uh, and they were. I'm envisioning something that I probably see on the History Channel. Right? Exactly. So interestingly enough, if you go over to the war, I mean, the uh, what is it called, the uh, spy museum in Washington D.C., there is before you go into the gift shop. There's a whole story about the emergency broadcast system there. You know, you can hear the tones, and they have a tower there, and, you you know, things kind of light up, and you hear messages that come across the emergency broadcast system. But those things were left over from the Cold War, War era and were in large part forgotten. So we have uh, 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 taken on an initiative to upgrade all of those uh, facilities. And as I mentioned, we had 36 in the program that were in bad need of modernization, uh, and we are in the process of modernizing those 36. But as part of the requirements to reach 90%, at least 90% of the U.S. population, we also built out 42 additional stations uh, that have the backup generators and the fuel systems and that have modern-day technology in them uh, and are equipped to run independently of commercial infrastructure for up to 60 days. All right, so um, a lot of work has been done in that area. We are here in Chicago, if I could say that, and uh, we're just at WLS uh, radio station. I think it's 890 on the AM dial. Uh, that's one of the, the most recent modernized stations uh, within the program. 
uh, and they have all of the latest stuff. I mean, very modular type facility so that if there is really some uh, uh, event that's taking place where we need to pick up and move that and stand it up in another location and continue to broadcast, we have the ability to do that almost within four hours to, to dismantle that facility and probably about eight to 12 hours to install it in another location. Um, but what we're talking about here, um, the equipment that we're providing to these um, primary entry point stations, these select stations around the country that we've entered into agreements with, um, the theme about the equipment seems to be redundancy. That station could send the signal out without right. the equipment that we have, right? They certainly could. But the, you know what we bring to this is a, a, a very robust and resilient capability. Many of the stations and the assets that they have there are primarily configured to run maybe a couple, three to four days, uh, as long as a week in some cases, uh, without commercial infrastructure being available to them. Those facilities are not going to be EMP protected or uh, have all of the protections in place to, do, to deal with solar flare activity. Uh, and so that's what we bring to uh, each of these commercial stations. Or an stations. EF5 tornado. Oh, or EF, exactly. So right. these stations that we're building out or these this additional capability that we're put, putting in place are high wind rated type facilities so they can survive a, an EF5 tornado or, or a major hurricane. In uh, areas where uh, that are uh, prone to flooding, many of those stations, or at least our assets, have been elevated uh, to uh, ensure that they can continue to operate. Take, for example, w, WWL in Louisiana. That station and our assets are sitting on stilts that are about 12 feet in the air. Right. It was one of the only stations during Hurricane Katrina that remained on the air because FEMA had assets there. 12,000 gallons of diesel fuel, two backup generators, and backup broadcast equipment in the facility elevated 12 feet in the air. It did not flood. Uh, there was not access to the facility through the normal uh, you know, through normal roads and things like that, but we were able to use John boats to get broadcasters and engineers and other folks out there so that uh, local officials could remain on the air and provide critical information to people. Yeah, I guess that's what I was thinking. Um, if if uh, an emergency message needed to go out. Um, and the building that is broadcasting the signal is standing and in good shape, then all is well, right? All is well. But if that uh, station and the facility that uh, pushes the message out, or the signal out, mm -hmm. um, the antennas and stuff, w were to be impacted by a tornado, by yes. a flood, um, by a hurricane, those types of things, then this is the redundant capability to be able to push those critical messages out from Absolutely. Emer emergency managers. Absolutely. And, and that's the real purpose of the program, to ensure that under all conditions, we can continue to provide the, the, the public with critical information, not only about the event, but the response that is being provided uh, you know, and, and uh, as a result of what has taken place in that community. Uh, and I think one of the most important things that when it comes to uh, response type activities is that the general, the public needs to be reassured that the government is there. They're going to be there to help them to recover and, and provide for the services that they would typically uh, require under any other circumstances. You know, where would they find, you know, housing or shelter? What about food, water, and medication? So these shelters are there, these facilities are there to make sure that we can provide that type of information when it's needed.
I think a lot of times we think that or we think of the radio in terms of the content that they're pushing out on a day-to-day basis and the commercials and all, mm-hmm. all, all that goes into the radio. But at the end of the day, what, what most of these radio stations are about is pushing out good quality messaging, especially when their communities are um, yes. endangered, right? Because they're part of the community. They, they are. They service the community. Um, and so I can imagine in a situation where you had a severe storm uh, that went through a town or um, you know any kind of community, um, they would want to be getting out as much information as they can. And in the event that their broadcast station were to go down, they could come to these uh, redundant stations and essentially set up a full broadcast capability, right? Absolutely. And we've seen, uh, take WLS that we were just at on, on yesterday, Um the way that we've configured and tied into the local station infrastructure, there would basically be no uh, off-air time when it comes to anything that could impact the station's capability. Uh, we saw yesterday that we can trans- we could transition into our assets in less than three minutes. So there may be a slight hiccup, but for the most part, the, the station is going to stay on the air and continue to deliver critical information. And that's, uh, I think, one of the... Let me just say this. One of the things that I think we need to do is better advertise that these capabilities are in local communities, and they're going to be a critical source of information when all of our other communications uh, uh, systems and capabilities are impacted. Uh, And we need to build that into our local emergency plans and things like that so that if the Internet goes down, if our cellular networks are impacted in some way, uh, citizens should know to tune in. It's going to be on the air, and it's going to be providing critical information in response to some event, whether small or large, they're going to be on the air. Uh, And I think that's going to be critical going forward is to make sure that our emergency management community are, are our emergency management community is aware of that and, and, and has built those uh, type uh, assets into their communications plans. Is that the future for the program, uh, getting more emergency managers to, to build this into their plan? Absolutely. I, I think what's critical for us because, you know, all emergencies occur locally uh, and then escalate from there to the state level. And, of course, when state resources have been exhausted, then, of course, the federal government is there to provide assistance uh, in support of the state and local governments. Uh, these assets are going to be critical uh, at every phase of a disaster, whether it's you know preparedness activities where folks know that they can go to these sources for critical information. If it's during the event and information is being put out about the event and you know conditions are changing that needs to be communicated, or in the response phase of the event where people need to be reassured and, and provided information on where to obtain resources or who to call. Um, those stations become critical communications lifelines in many cases uh, until other sources of communications can be restored. Uh, so these are, I, I would like to see, you know, all 50 states, all six territories, all 3,000 plus counties leveraging these services to ensure that uh, at the end of the day, their local populations and the people of this country are being kept informed. Uh, I can tell you, Mark, I sit in some of these meetings where uh, many of the discussions are focused around uh, communications, but it's government-to-government communications. How do we communicate at the federal level with everyone that may come uh, uh, onto, into an, an environment where they're providing a response to support activities? And then how does the federal gov- government communicate with state and local and state and local with, you know, uh, everyone else out there? And uh, one of the things that oftentimes doesn't get addressed is how do we communicate with people? We're all here to serve 
people, you know, in our communities and, and of course, with the federal government at the national level. And that's the conversation I, I typically try and get introduced to the discussion uh, in every setting. Well, we're talking about communicating with one another. What about communicating with the people? How are we doing that? And what are the methods and means for, for making sure that people are informed and taking the appropriate action in response to some of these threats that they face? We welcome your comments and suggestions on this and future episodes. Help us to improve the podcast by rating us and leaving a comment. If you have ideas for future topics, send us an email at fema-podcast at fema.dhs.gov. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics, visit fema.gov slash podcast. Podcast.